everyone. Welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so excited to have you join us today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wayspur Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, ZME Science is reporting that scientists are using the smell of fear to ward off insect pests from crops mm. and gardens. Whose fear? Yeah. Like people <laughs> fear or flower fear? That's a very good question. What kind of fear smell do you think would work to ward off insect pests from crops and gardens? I mean, I would assume the insect fear. That's true. Yep. Way nailed it. And if you think about, you know, our own humble downtown Austin, on evenings and nights, sometimes you can hear really terrible screeching because I believe they have pre-recorded and broadcast <laughs> the sound of predator birds to frighten Screaming. off other... It's true, uh, you know, to frighten off and ward away doves or sparrows from setting up residence in these urban buildings. Huh. Um, there have also been like owl scarecrow statues that you can place to kind of let other birds know there are predator birds mm -hmm. around. So we've been using sound and we've been using sight, but now we are using smell and specifically the smell of fear. And for insects, this is pretty effective because they secrete and detect all kinds of pheromones. They help them reproduce. It helps them communicate with members of their own species. They use odors to detect threats. And not only that, exposure to these chemicals slows the reproduction rates of the insects and it increases their ability to grow wings. And both of these are natural behaviors that are meant to better equip them to escape threats. So they use something called gas chromatography mass spectrometry to identify and extract the volatile odors secreted by ladybugs. They then, imagine this, hooked up the antenna of live aphids to an EAG machine and exposed them to individual chemical components <laughs> released by the ladybugs to see what they could detect. Which, if you think about it, this is really difficult because aphids are super tiny. If you've yeah. never seen them, they barely register as like a speck of green sand on the bottom of your tomato plants or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so in order to assess the behavior of these tiny, tiny insects, they had to use specialized tools and techniques instead of just visual observations. For one example, a researcher had to teach the whole lab how to use a sewing machine so they could fashion field cages that would be able to exclude other organisms besides the aphids and lady beetles. So mm. the quote here is, justifying our spending and purchasing must be hilarious to read in the business office because 50% <laughs> right. of this job is like arts and crafts, right? Mm -hmm. So they were able to develop a special odor cocktail that is now undergoing testing in the field. They spray it from an essential oil diffuser <laughs> to uh, <laughs> determine whether the odors are effective. The other next steps they're looking at are finally to get this trial and strategy in other crops. They've been using it in brassica, so, you know, like cabbages and broccoli and all of that. But they're trying to see what other crops and what other type of insect pests that lady beetles or ladybugs tend to prey upon. Yeah, there is something to the idea of, hey, when I eat vegetables now, I get to eat insect fear. It's kind of fun. <laughs> That's true. 
<laughs> the lamentations it. of their women. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some vegans might take some umbrage with that, but I look forward to seeing the Reddit threads. Yeah, it is a little saw when you describe what they do with the aphids. <laughs> but, yeah, you know. but that's only for the testing. Like once you've got the chemical Correct. compound, they're making that synthetically. They're not doing like a reverse Monsters Inc. where they're terrifying the children <laughs> and like sucking the fear out of the little aphids as they're strapped into a chair. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from NewScientist.com, and it's titled, Female Octopuses Throw Things at Males That Are Harassing Them. Sounds fair. Yeah. Mm, same. <laughs> so, an analysis of footage of octopuses off the coast of Australia throwing shells and silt suggests that they intentionally target and often hit other octopuses. In 2015, Peter Godfrey Smith at the University of Sydney and his colleagues filmed several Sydney octopuses interacting at a site in Jervis Bay dubbed Octopolis. <laughs> it's one of the few places in the otherwise sandy sea bottom where octopuses can make dens, so there are an unusual number of them in a small area. The cameras captured fights, matings, and an extraordinary behavior the team calls throwing. <laughs> Godfrey Smith <laughs> says... It's hard to know how best to describe it, which is part of why I mean, they're... I, I'm pretty sure I can imagine it. I don't know that it needs that much describing. Yeah. They're throwing. Like, yeah, well, it, once I describe it, you'll see. They already found that buzzword already. Like, right. How can it be hard to describe when the most generic term has already sufficed? Yeah. So what they do that probably is why they're, they're saying it's so hard to think of it that way is because they hold silt, algae, or objects such as shells under their bodies in their tentacles and then angle their siphons and shoot a jet of water at the projectiles, oh. propelling them up to several body lengths. Whoa. So it's not like a baseball arm throw. It's like spitting a watermelon seed is what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's a combination of both. Like if you threw a baseball uh -huh. and then shot it with a gun. Okay. You know, like they said, it's hard to describe. So <laughs> this throwing behavior was known to be used for discarding the remains of meals or for excavating dens, but the videos also revealed many instances where octopuses hit other individuals with thrown objects. And when Godfrey Smith described this behavior in a 2015 talk, he wasn't sure whether they are intentionally targeting the other octopuses or just accidentally hitting them. <laughs> now the team has more footage and detailed analysis has also revealed differences between the throws targeting others and those used for den clearing, suggesting that the octopuses are indeed deliberately targeting others. <laughs> yeah. For instance, in 2016, one female octopus threw silt 10 times at a male from a nearby den who was attempting to mate with her. <laughs> she hit him on five occasions, and Godfrey Smith says, that sequence was one of the ones that convinced me it was intentional. Seriously, ten times? Take the hint, male octopus. Yeah, yeah. but she only hit him five. He's like, maybe her accuracy's not so good, and I can still get in there. Ugh, take yeah. the no, jeez. <laughs> on four of these occasions, the male tried to, quote, duck, though he didn't always <laughs> succeed. I like how they're using these regular words that mean totally different things in octopus land, apparently. Right. <laughs> when targeting others, the octopuses were more likely to throw silt than shells, and the throws were also more vigorous. Mm. In addition, the throws used during den building were almost always shot between the front two tentacles, 
When throwing at others, the octopus is sometimes angled to throw between the first and second tentacles on the left or right, which can suggest a kind of targeting. Hmm. And on one occasion, the researchers did see an octopus throw a shell at and hit another octopus by flinging it like a frisbee rather than by propelling material with its siphon. Hmm. So while a number of wild animals throw or propel things at other animals, only a handful, including chimpanzees, are known to target members of their own species. On two occasions, an octopus hit a fish, though one of these collisions appears to have been accidental. (laughs) The animals also seem to target the camera on occasion, hitting Mm -hmm. the tripod twice. Mm -hmm. While the throwing appears to be used as a form of attack, the team hasn't seen any targeted octopus respond by attacking or throwing things back. And Mm -hmm. what's more, some throws that happen after intense social interactions aren't directed at another octopus, but into empty space suggesting the animals might be venting their frustration. Doesn't this like point to how emotional capacity and sentience can be even more strongly argued for octopus species? Oh yeah, octopus are insanely smart. Like I, that's why I don't eat them. I have a rule where I won't eat anything that I think might be smarter than me. (laughs) Because they're incredibly intelligent. The only thing they're missing is uh, lungs, I guess. And a driver's license. That too. You know, like, (laughs) Yeah. So in one case, after a male's advances to a female were rejected, he threw a shell in a random direction and changed color. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sorry, man. You know, it happens. That's right. Yeah, been there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, just, you know, put on the blues for a while. There you go. Literally. Like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right, this next article from Mihai Andre at ZME Science is called That Time I Shipped Myself as a Package or Why You Shouldn't Travel in a Box. Oh. And the title mm. makes it sound like the author themselves tried this, which is not the case, but it is a first-person interview with someone who did, namely Brian Robson, who attempted to ship himself in a wooden crate from Australia to London in 1965. Ooh. Yes. So Robson, who was 19 at the time, had gone to Australia for work and found himself in a bit of a company store situation. He wanted to quit his job and go home, but he was only making 40 pounds a month, and the return flight was going to cost around 700 pounds. Wow. So instead, he got himself a wooden box, which he described as about the size of a mini fridge, and (laughs) packed it with what he thought was essential for the trip, including pillows, a suitcase, two bottles, one for water, one for urine, and a book of Beatles songs to keep him entertained. (laughs) And I'm not sure how he thought he was going to read a book inside a dark box, but that wasn't even the worst part of his plan. Because (laughs) he packed himself inside the box in a sitting position. Like, I think most people would assume, oh, like, coffin position, right? You want to be able to roll over and relax. But no, he had his knees pressed to his chest, his back up against his suitcase. He could barely move. And he said that while the position initially seemed comfortable, it soon grew very painful. Especially mm-hmm. because the friends who nailed his box closed for him didn't make any effort to label it this end up. And <gasps> Robson was repeatedly stored upside down during transit, just like all his oh. weight on his head and neck. Oh my goodness. What's worse, the freight plane he was supposed to be loaded onto was full. So instead of going straight to London, Robson's box was redirected onto a Pan Am flight going the opposite direction around the planet <laughs> with a long layover in Los Angeles. Oh, my God. Fortunately, he was discovered by an airport worker in the U.S., which probably saved his life. But it also meant he was turned over to the FBI and grilled for days about his attempt to infiltrate American borders. (laughs) It was, he admits now, a stupid plan. (laughs) (laughs) But 
you know, he barely lived and many have not been so lucky. Some unverified reports estimate that as many as 40 to 50 people per year are killed trying to mail themselves over long distances. Wait, even today? Yeah, that's what they said. And they said it was unverified, but they're like, you know, (gasps) this seems like a pretty reasonable estimate by people in the know, which is absolutely insane. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And they usually do it to save money on airfare. It's usually a financial decision. And even a short distance, though, can be deadly. For example, in 2012, a Chinese man tried to surprise his girlfriend by having himself delivered to her house which was just on the other side of town, and the trip only should have taken about an hour. But the courier was delayed unexpectedly, and the man hadn't thought to put any air holes in his box. Oh, Oh. no. Yeah. He was found unconscious, presumably by his girlfriend, when she opened the box and found her dead boyfriend in it. But fortunately, the paramedics were able to revive him. He barely made it. Wow. And while the article is careful to say several times, do not try this, (laughs) <laughs> the fact is, it has actually worked a few times in history. Uh-oh. Yeah. So the earliest known example of someone mailing themselves was Henry Box Brown in 1849, which is obviously a nickname he got after the event. He hid himself inside a dry goods crate going north to escape slavery. And once he was free, he immediately published a book on how he'd pulled it off, which his oh abolitionist gosh. accomplices were very upset about because it put greater scrutiny on shipping containers and meant they couldn't free anyone else by the same method. Ugh. In 2005, a Cuban woman named Sandra de los Santos managed to gain asylum in the U.S. after shipping herself to Miami in a box. Wow. And in 1964, an Australian Olympic javelin thrower named Reg Spears successfully managed a 63-hour transit between England and Australia. And he seems to have actually kind of known what he was doing because reportedly he was able to actually get out of his crate and kind of walk around in the cargo hold once he was on the plane. But Details are kind of sketchy, unfortunately, because shortly after that, Spears was found to be participating in a drug smuggling ring. Uh And after spending several years as a fugitive and serving time in prison, he now refuses to talk about any of his international shipping exploits. Okay, Which makes sense. You know, if he's like, yeah, I'm really good at this. Of course you're going to go into drug smuggling or smuggling (laughs) something. If you got a talent and you can't make it profitable, what are you even doing in a capitalist society? That's right. Use it or lose it, man. Mm -hmm. But there is one set of circumstances and point in time that did work very well for a number of people. And that was the trend of mailing children at the turn of the 20th century. Oh. So in 1913, the newly formed U.S. Post Office raised their upper limit for package weight to 50 pounds. And many parents pretty much simultaneously had the brilliant idea of sending their children to visit relatives on the postal truck rather than pay for a train fare. Yes. But while this method was surprisingly popular, all things considered, it is important to note that none of the children were ever packed into boxes. This was an era when people knew their postal delivery man personally, and really the kids were just hitching a ride in the passenger seat of the mail truck. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. Nonetheless, it only (laughs) took about a year before the Postal Service banned the practice. Yeah. Yeah. And after going through all of these people who were actually successful, the article ends with, quote, Instead of an ending, we thought we'd emphasize just how dangerous the practice of human male is. Seriously, just don't do it. So <laughs> That doesn't seem like anything I would ever want to do. 
even no. if it occurred to me, and I had very good reasons to do it. Yeah, but, I mean, desperation definitely makes people, I mean, you know, yeah. you use the language, it was a financial decision. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It was a little like, more than that. If it's to save your life, you know, that's sure. that's a different story. Yeah, yeah but, like, you know, if you're a refugee, if you're in a truly, uh, you know, this is when people are in desperate situations, they will do desperate things, but please don't do this desperate thing. Yeah. Please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Time for a little bit of a brain blower here. Uh, Science Alert has uh, reported that scientists are proposing a radical new framework to redefine life on Earth. Okay. This is a bit all of right. a big, hairy, audacious idea, but let's get into it. We all know, for the most part, that sometime <laughs> around 3.5 billion years ago, life on Earth was ignited into existence from molecular beginnings. And so now it's branched through time into the different array of entities we love and know today, like flora and fauna. And that is sort of the current line of thinking. But we still don't really have a super clear definition of life. Like, is a virus alive? What about an entire forested ecosystem? The mm-hmm. great sequoias? Because many aspects of an ecosystem are just as dependent on each other as organs within a body. So, biologist Chris Kemps and complex systems researcher David Krakauer from Santa Fe Institute, New Mexico, have posed the idea that our focus on evolution as a driving force may have blinded us to additional general principles of life. Mm, Time to take a step back, Darwin. (laughs) To explore this, the researchers are broadening the definition of life to the union of two energetic and informatic processes that can encode and pass on adaptive information forward through time. Okay. So, like, quantum particles would count. (laughs) Using this definition vastly increases what can be seen as life. And this would then include concepts such as culture, forests, Mm. and even the economy. To explain this new definition, a quote from Kemp's reads, Human culture lives on the material of minds, much like multicellular organisms live on the material of single-celled organisms. So, by this definition, things like a meme could even be alive right (laughs) and based on this new definition the researchers argue that life has emerged many times on earth and that we in fact are coexisting with many forms of current life and we can kind of get a sense you know this isn't too unfamiliar we've been living with plants we've been living with animals we understand that kind of coexisting but in terms of like our regions and our ideas and our thoughts That gets a little wacky. So there's a really cool table where they've kind of done a 3D illustration of this abstraction where we basically get into these different levels of reality. So they've got some terminology around them. I definitely recommend you take a look at it when you can. But let's start with level one. Life here is restricted by the possible materials it could be formed by, like molecules. And then level two, life is limited by the constraints of the wider universe. So on level two, we have something like gravity. And then on three, level three, life is optimized by adaptive processes. So this is where something like natural selection lives. Hmm. So within this hierarchy, concepts that join the worlds of physics with biology are considered. So for example, life uses a lot of gradients of energy production using the level one constraints, but all of these must adhere to the level two constraint of the law of thermodynamics. So they're basically trying to get this like almost singularity approach into weaving in understood scientific perspectives and principles to account for this expanded definition of life. 
they also write that no cell will be found to contain more internal structure than can be accounted for by the total free energy available from the environment. We expect many rich biological concepts to be defined by a strange tangle of the three levels because the three levels will unavoidably co-evolve. Hmm. Right. Well, that makes sense because like, if you're saying something like culture is alive and culture can evolve, I mean, I can see where they're coming from. But mm -hmm. the idea that, like, gravity exists even if nothing is there to fall, culture just doesn't exist unless you have those underlying organisms of people's brains mm -hmm. moving it around and sharing it. Yeah. But then again, that's the argument about viruses is that they're mm -hmm. maybe not alive because they can't live on their own. They have to have us to reproduce. But a living thing can live if it still needs that living thing. Right. right or exactly. living systems to exist. Yeah. So if you take away the system that the living thing needs to exist, it dies, which presupposes it was alive to begin with. Right. right? Well, it's interesting because not to make it even more complicated, but any virus hypothetically then is capable of life, but is mm -hmm. not inherently alive. Mm. There you go. This kind of feels like a mind-bending theoretical, the same way that quantum physics did when it first came on the scene. But it's kind of amazing to just look at this old concept that we, pardon the pun, have lived with for so long mm -hmm. from a really new perspective, right? Because this widening of our thinking can trigger different ideas that can lead to new understandings. And boy, howdy, are we in a time that could really benefit from some new understandings, right? Right? Some mind broadening. Yeah. I, I love this because it's kind of like a reimagining of original animist thinking where essentially everything is alive and everything has some sort of quality of beinghood even if yeah. it's not consciousness in mm. the same way that we experience it mm -hmm. and i really like it just aesthetically as a system and as a belief system because mm -hmm. i feel that it's one of the only ones that gets you to treat the world and everything and everybody in it with some minimum level of respect. Yeah. Right. This really harkens to Shintoism, if you're familiar with that at all, which kind mm -hmm. of has that principle of life infused in what we might traditionally call inanimate things. Yeah. Well, and on the narrow yeah. end of it, you've got the Marie Kondo philosophy, which is like, oh, you have to say goodbye and thank you to this shirt. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't have direct applications. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com. It's titled, Al Capone's Life Under Fresh Scrutiny with Online Auction of Personal Items. Hmm. Oh, yeah. he was not that bad after all. <laughs> <laughs> or he was well, worse. <laughs> yeah. It does say fresh scrutiny, so right. that doesn't necessarily imply one way or the other, I guess. But uh, So the life of the notorious mobster Al Capone is under said scrutiny more than seven decades after his death with an online auction in California of some of his most personal effects. The three living granddaughters of the Prohibition-era gangster known as Scarface are selling a collection of artwork, letters, and even Capone's personal Colt 45 pistol among a 174-lot inventory valued at up to $715,000. That honestly seems kind of low. I was thinking yeah, it would be higher. I'm surprised. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, I guess probably a lot of it was seized by the government and all right, that. Right, right. So, you know. <laughs> the auction, which will be hosted live by Witherells of Sacramento on 8th of October, is entitled A Century of Notoriety. It opens a window into the family life and private side of the iconic mafioso believed to have masterminded the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre and scores of other mob hits during his brief but bloody spell as head of the ruthless gang called the Chicago Outfit. Hmm. 
One of the most fascinating lots is a three-page letter to his son, Sonny, that Capone wrote in October 1931 from his cell in Alcatraz, the same month he was convicted and sentenced to 11 years in prison on federal tax evasion charges. Capone wrote in pencil, To my dear son, well son of my heart, here is dear father who loves you with all my heart and proud to have a son as smart as you are. And that letter is expected to sell for between $25,000 and $30,000. Does the son not want it anymore? I'll bet he's dead. I mean. Yeah, that's a good point. Because at this point, it's all just granddaughters. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We've got great, great grandkids that need to go to college. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Bidding for the gangster's Patek Philippe pocket watch monogrammed and embedded with 90 diamonds will start at $12,500. Other lots include a large number of photographs of Capone and family members, crystal glassware, figurines, and other decorative items from the mobsters' homes in Chicago and Miami, earrings, cufflinks and money clips, and assorted other jewelry. Meanwhile, Capone's pistol, which he carried for protection, but which is not believed to have been used in any crime, is valued at up to $60,000. Capone was released from prison in 1939 in poor health and retired to his mansion in Palm Island, Miami, where he died in January 1947. The collection belongs to three daughters of Sonny Capone, one of whom, author Diane Patricia Capone, 77, will appear at the preview event one day before the auction. She said in a statement issued by the auction house, what people don't know is his personal story as a father and grandfather and his painful path of redemption while at Alcatraz. That is the unknown Capone I talk about in my book, and it's the story that comes to life with these family treasures. Diane Capone, who was born in Miami and helped nurse her grandfather in his final years, told the Wall Street Journal that she and her sister Barbara decided in January to sell the collection. She said, We were getting older and we were concerned that if anything happened to either of us, the people wouldn't know what was what and what was the story that went with each thing. Most of our treasures are things we hold in our hearts. We came from an extremely loving family, and that's the greatest treasure that we have. Aww. Also, they yeah. were incredibly rich. Like, yes. you came from a loving family, but you had a mansion in Palm Springs just kind of hanging out yeah. waiting for Grandpa to get out of prison. So, yeah. You were loved and you were shown that love through the theft of other things and right. violence. But, yeah, okay. You know, it's it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> families, so the, am I right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially crime families, you know? Jeez. <laughs> so while the ethics of auctioning off the belongings of criminals or morally dubious individuals or enterprises is questionable, experts say the historical importance of the artifacts also has to be taken into consideration. Sure. Howard Abedinsky, professor of criminology at St. John's University and a consultant in the administration of Ronald Reagan on organized crime, says, in Las Vegas, you have an organized crime museum. You just look at television, the cable networks, and the single theme is crime and crime shows. Mm -hmm. In America, you have this romanticism of crime in general and organized crime in particular. Mm -hmm. With the auction, they're trying to show that these people have a family life. They can be murderers by night and good family men by day, Mm. which... I'm not really sure what he's trying to say here, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but that's what he said. I mean, so yes, he, you can murder people and love your children. Those aren't mutually yes. exclusive, but it doesn't make you a great person. <laughs> is the, yeah, yeah. Are we trying to normalize or mainstream that as an option? Because I don't feel like society <laughs> should. I mean, I'll definitely say I am unusual, I guess, compared to the rest of America in that I find crime procedurals and all the true crime podcasts and all of it. I don't enjoy any of it. 
But it's also possibly because I'm like, yeah, of course they murdered people. Like people are out there murdering people every day. It's not special. Yeah. Like, well, sounds like your heart yeah. is the only crime show you need. <laughs> That's right. Oh. <laughs> exactly. Oh. I I got to just churn in 24 hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> next link. Next link. All right. This next article is from Atlas Obscura, and it's called "What Does It Mean That Greenland Sharks Could Live for Hundreds of Years." I don't think it kind of means they could live for hundreds of years, but there is more to it. Uh, So we're following the progress of a marine biologist at the University of Copenhagen named John Stephenson, who has a particular fascination with Greenland sharks. He first saw one on a fishing expedition about 15 years ago, which at the time he thought was really cool, but he says the captain of his boat just laughed at him. He told (gasps) Stephenson that Greenland sharks were nothing but a nuisance, They ate all the halibut the fishermen were trying to catch. They were so big they could break fishing equipment if they got tangled up in it. And their meat tastes completely foul and can even be toxic. (sighs) The captain said just killing Greenland sharks itself was a hassle because if you didn't thoroughly dispose of the carcass, local dogs might eat it and get shark drunk, sending them into a wild frenzied state until the toxin's effects wore off. And in fact, he said most coastal towns in the area offered a bounty for dead Greenland sharks, hitting a peak of around $50 per shark in the mid-1980s. And somewhere in the midst of all this anti-shark sentiment, the captain also happened to mention that Greenland sharks supposedly lived a really long time. And for whatever reason, this last bit is what caught Stephenson's attention. (laughs) So he went back to Denmark and he started digging through the literature on how fast Greenland sharks grow and how their size might indicate something about their age. Because fish in general tend to keep steadily growing with age rather than topping Mm -hmm. out once they hit adulthood. That's how you end up with gigantic goldfish in Michigan, like Mm -hmm. we talked about a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And Stephenson found one study that indicated Greenland sharks only grow about half a centimeter per year. So if you're looking at a shark that's about 15 feet long, like the one he'd seen on his fishing trip, it would have to be hundreds of years old. Mm -hmm. And if that were the case, it would make the Greenland shark the longest living vertebrate on Earth. So Stephenson decided he needed more proof. He looked into a bunch of ways you might determine the age of a shark's carcass, including scanning the bones for aging rings, which some animals apparently have, but sharks do not. And nothing was working until eventually he happened to get in touch with Jan Heinemeyer, a retired physicist from Aarhus University and a renowned expert on radiocarbon dating. And Heinemeyer suggested that Stephenson should examine the shark's eyeballs, Because he said, unlike most tissues, which are constantly generating new cells, vertebrate eye lenses are developed at birth and then remain completely stable over the course of our lives, which means they can be carbon dated to see when they were formed. And weirdly enough, the article mentions that Heinemeyer knew this process would work because in 2008 he had used it in the investigation of a child murder case in Germany. And then it just moves right on from that. There's no further explanation. (laughs) But so Stephenson and his doctoral student, Julius Nielsen, extracted the eyes of 28 female Greenland sharks caught by local fishermen. Stephenson told the author of this article, their eyeballs are about the size of oranges and noted that at the time of the interview, he actually had some in his freezer at home. But the results were clear. Greenland sharks can definitively live up to 512 years and likely much longer since the largest shark in their study was only 15 feet long. And Stephenson himself has personally measured sharks up to 18 feet. So this means there are Greenland sharks alive today that were born during the Renaissance. What? Wow. Yeah. And after publishing these initial results in 2016, the question then became, how? How can any creature live that (laughs) long? 
And so a lot of different researchers have been coming at that question ever since from different angles. So Holly Shields, a professor of animal physiology at the University of Manchester, has focused on their hearts, which are about the size of a small watermelon. And she says the Greenland shark has a uniquely sophisticated system for repairing damaged DNA in the heart. Another scientist, David Constantini, is looking at oxidative stress in their blood and muscle tissue, while Kim Prabel of the Arctic University of Norway is looking for immune-related genes, thinking regardless of what their body's doing, if they can't fight off illness, they're still going to die young. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Peter Bushnell, a biologist at Indiana University, says the most important factors are lifestyle and environment. Greenland sharks are evolved to live in icy cold temperatures at the bottom of the ocean, which he says gives them a very slow metabolism. They move very slowly and efficiently. They really are the top of the food chain, so they don't have to try very hard to catch their prey. And they've been (laughs) known to live without food for up to a year after eating just one large seal. Wow. Wow. But this also means they take around 150 years to reach sexual maturity. So just the whole timeline is slowed down. It's not like they're having party years for hundreds of years. (laughs) And Bushnell actually thinks it's a waste of time for us to be looking at their longevity. Because, of course, what most people are really looking for is ways that humans could live longer. And Mm -hmm. he says, to live so long, we would have to live like a Greenland shark. And that just doesn't make sense. Nobody's going (laughs) to slow our metabolism down to the point that we're barely moving and not reaching adulthood until we're 150 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds boring. Yeah. (laughs) But it also sounds really close to what we're doing in lockdown right now. Like, I'm (laughs) not moving around as much, so my metabolism is a little slower. I'm definitely lowering my caloric intake, so like one seal a month. Oh, see, I think that's the opposite of what most people are doing. We're not moving (laughs) around, I'll agree, but my caloric intake has gone way up. (laughs) Yeah. I got my stress eating done in version 1.0 of lockdown, but some health stuff got me to make some adjustments for version 2.2 sure well you've evolved you you've you've (gasps) changed to meet your environment and your caloric intake is itself a living system that you have (laughs) can consider to be alive she brought it back that's right bam (laughs) next link Next link. All right. I'm going to leave you with my last selection as a a prescription of sorts. This is a really lovely excerpt from a new book that Literary Hub has published on the link between great thinking and obsessive walking from Charles Hmm. Darwin to Toni Morrison. Jeremy DeSilva looks at our need to move. This is from an upcoming book called First Steps, and I am definitely going to be not only reading this, but gifting it to my father, who is a (laughs) daily walker and great thinker, in all fairness. That's nice. Yeah, so it goes into some of the famous thinkers like Charles Darwin. He was an introvert. Granted, he spent almost five years traveling the world on the Beagle, but Mm -hmm. after returning home in 1836, he never again stepped foot outside the British Isles. He avoided conferences, parties, and large gatherings. Honestly, same. So instead, (laughs) he passed most of his days at Down House, which was his quiet home almost 20 miles southeast of London. But his best thinking was not actually done in his study. It was done outside on a lowercase D-shaped path on the edge of his property. He called it the Sandwalk, and today it is known as Darwin's Thinking Path. Hmm. Janet Brown, an author of a two-volume biography of Darwin, wrote, As a business-like man, he would pile up a mound of flints at the turn of the path and knock one away every time he passed to ensure he made a predetermined number of circuits without having to interrupt his train of thought. 
Five turns around the path amounted to half a mile or so, and the sandwalk was where he pondered. Hmm. So he was walking this sandwalk as he developed his theory of evolution by means of natural selection. He walked to ponder the mechanism of movement and climbing plants and to imagine what wonders pollinated the fantastically shaped and colorful orchids he described. His final walks were done with his wife, Emma, as he thought about earthworms and their role in gradually remodeling the soil. The author had the meta experience of walking Darwin's thinking path to think about how walking helps you think. Super mm-hmm. meta. <laughs> and so the author kind of turns this around to why does walking help us think? We've known this for a while. And even the 19th century English poet William Wordsworth is said to have walked 180,000 miles in his life. Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, there's something about walking which stimulates and enlivens my thoughts. When I stay in one place, I can hardly think at all. My body has to be on the move to set my mind going. Immanuel Kant, he was such a disciplined walker that he was known in his German town to be so precise that the locals could set their time based on where he was walking at every given day. They Hmm. could set their clocks to him. He was so Mm. regimented about it. Of course, the author also notes that all of the famous walkers they've talked about thus far are all guys. <laughs> Little has been written about famous women who regularly walked. Virginia Woolf is one exception. She walked quite a bit. We've heard about some recent female authors, but historically, walking has been the privilege of white men. Uh, black men were likely to be arrested or worse. Women Oof. out for a walk are harassed or worse, even mm-hmm. today for both cases. And of course, rarely in our evolutionary history has it been safe for anyone to really walk alone. But a university psychologist from Stanford, Marilyn Oppenezzo, used to walk around campus with her PhD advisor to discuss lab results and brainstorm new projects. But they came up with an experiment to actually quantify this relationship between walking and creative thinking. A group of students were asked to list as many creative uses for common objects as they could. So, for example, they were given a Frisbee. Some of them could say, you could use it as a dog toy, but it's also a hat to put it on your head. Or it's a plate, serve some food on it. Or a bird bath, fill it with water. So the more novel uses a student listed, the higher the creativity score. So they did half the students sitting for an hour before giving that test, and the others walked on a treadmill. And the results were staggering. Hmm. Creativity scores improved by 60% after a walk. Wow. So walking changes our brains and Mm -hmm. it not only impacts our creativity, but also impacts our memory. So take from this what you will. Uh, This is just, again, an excerpt and the book has a lot more information. But consider this your prescription to make sure to go out and take a lengthy walk today. Yeah, I admit I have a treadmill desk, but I don't use it as much as I should. (laughs) (laughs) There's your reminder. You know, you might get better work out of it or even just doing it for a little bit and then coming back to your task. Maybe not necessarily simultaneously, but, you know, experiment and report back. Yeah. It makes me wonder if the same thing applies to just exercise or body movement in general, because... You know, I personally feel very much that wisdom and knowledge and information gets stored in the body. Oh, yeah. And not even on sort of like the positive impacts of like, you know, thinking and memory, but the same way that you're talking about physical experiences being encoded in the body, there's another book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is all about how trauma encodes on our Mm -hmm. DNA and cells and can be epigenetically passed from one generation to the other. Mm -hmm. For example, I have a parent who escaped a war during a period of unrest and genocide 
that experience is something that I carry that stress response for in my own body. And that book, The Body Keeps the Score, also talks about how movement, specifically breathing and yoga, can be powerful tools to better process some of the traumatic storage that we have. So it definitely has applications for both positive and negative experiences, but some degree of movement, make sure to get some of that today. Fine. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Your auntie Angie just wants you to be happy and live the best life, y'all. You say it because you love me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Mysterious Disappearance of the World's Longest Shrubbery, Why Phone Scams Are So Difficult to Tackle, and The Epic Landscape Art of Tiny Inakadate, Japan. So all that and more can be found at daminteresting.com. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.